welcome back to the Full Capacity Living Podcast. Yes, I am still here. This last year, it was necessary for me to let this go to work on my own healing and grief from the passing of my sister from breast cancer. It's still pretty unbelievable to say that out loud. I truly believe that taking the time to work through grief is so necessary, not only to our mental health, but our physical health. Burying it only creates dis-ease. And as a health coach whose work is about supporting health and well-being in others, it was imperative that I work to heal myself. As with all things, this is a work in progress, but if you are here now listening to this, I want you to know that I so appreciate that you have come back to my podcast. Or if you're new to discovering it, welcome. Check out my first season, so many great conversations. This is definitely a labor of love for me. Not a day or week went by in the last year that I didn't think, I need to get my podcast going again. But I needed to do it when I could put the energy toward this project that it deserved. It's been a year. This podcast conversation with Dr. Jill Krista was recorded about two weeks before my sister passed away. I will be eternally grateful that I could be with my sister in those last moments with her in my arms. Supporting others to achieve optimal health has always been my passion, but even more so now as there are so many ways that we can discover the root cause of our health issues and live better lives. So to that end, I give you Dr. Jill Krista. She is a leading expert at the forefront of mold-related illness, diagnosis, and treatment. She's an author, educator, and naturopathic doctor, and is on a mission to raise medical literacy about mold and mold-related illness. Dr. Jill now serves on the government-appointed naturopathic medical examining board for the state of Wisconsin. She earned her naturopathic doctoral degree with honors from the National University of Naturopathic Medicine in Portland, Oregon in 2003. In 2012, she completed the physician training program with the International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society. She's always had a passion for plant medicine, and you'll hear about that in this podcast, how it all started. She was the owner, director, and practicing member of two integrative clinics offering naturopathic medicine, integrative medicine, acupuncture, chiropractor, physical therapy, and much more. And it was here that she witnessed the efficacy and synergy of a team approach to patient care. As a peer-reviewed published author, she's now focusing on research, teaching, and writing, specializing in neuroinflammatory conditions such as mold sickness, brain injury, pans and pandas, which is the topic of her newest book. Without further delay, please enjoy this eye-opening conversation where we dig into all things mold-related, which is much more than you might think. Deep, deep, deep thank you again for being here. Please review and subscribe to the Full Capacity Living Podcast on Apple and Spotify for a whole new season of conversations. Now on to our conversation. So welcome, Dr. Jill Krista. This is so great to have you on the podcast. Um, 
I have looked at your work and understood your work for quite a while. Um, and I'm excited to kind of dig into your background and a little bit about how you came to working as a naturopath and, and just the progression into what you do now. So uh, let's get going. Just talk a little bit about your background. Um, where, when did you first think that you wanted to get into um, a healing profession? I was working at a, a hippie store. It was a bike shop slash ski shop slash herbal medicine slash natural food store. It's a wonderful place. Oh. Um, and yeah, it was a great college job. Was, you know, being out, I was into mountain biking and, you know, taught me how to eat healthier. I was already pretty healthy that way. And I was working there and the owner's wife was, well, the, the two owners, um, though she was a herbalist, a master herbalist, and she had wanted to go to something that was more formal. So she was, a, she became a nurse, but always wanted to do basically naturopathic medicine. Right. And I didn't even know what this stuff was. I was in business school. So <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So I was in college for business. That's actually what my, one of my degrees is, is a degree in business, which is really funny and working (laughs) at this shop because it was really a fun place to work. And I noticed that people were coming in and buying these herbal remedies. And I watched her make poultices to put on bee stings. Um, People would come in with road rash from, from mountain biking, and she would make these these poultices and packs and compresses she'd like pull down all the herbs from the shelf and just start mixing stuff up and I just thought that is so cool like I would love to know how to do that (laughs) and where was this where was where were you at at the time yeah in Wisconsin where I am now like a half hour from where I live now so great you're in Wisconsin closer to Chicago area right Illinois yep southern Mm -hmm. yeah so this was a the university was right next to a big state park And so we had, you know, all of this outdoor space. It's really a beautiful place, spring water and all these things, you know, that were available. So I'm watching her do this. I'm thinking, wow, that's amazing. And then I noticed that when she wasn't in the store, people were coming in and, you know, I'm back there making sandwiches and tabbouleh and, you know, mushroom soup and things like that. And people were coming to me with these bottles of, um, you know, raw crude herbs saying, should I take this one or should I take this one for my liver cancer? And I was like, what, (laughs) why are you asking me for starters? So I said to them, you know, I don't know. I just work here. You know, I'm not Anita. I'm not the woman who knows, but they're coming in with real desire to have help with this. And I had a real desire to know that knowledge. And she came in one night, I was doing some bookkeeping and I said, man, these people came in again with the liver cancer. (laughs) I didn't know what to tell them. And I said, wouldn't it be amazing if you could actually become a doctor in this kind of stuff? I mean, that's the first time I had ever even had the thought. And she kind of had, it was just like in the movies. She got this excited look in her eyes and she said, hang on. And she went back to some dusty file cabinet and brought out a binder, a three ring binder that was just overflowing with all of the, the studying and research and things that she had done. And she set it on the counter. It was literally like the movies. The dust just went, you know, all over the place. And she said, you can, there are all these schools. So there's like wild rose herbal school. And so all of these herbal trainings that she had gone away for weekends to do. And um, I have a friend who was owner of a herbal tincture company and I didn't really put it two and two together, but I opened this big binder and, you know, it creaks open and there is 
his, an ad for his herb company. And, you know, when I was growing up, we would just take his echinacea when you got sick, echinacea astragalus. That's just kind of what we did. Yeah. And then right above it was the advertisement for the school that I ended up going to in naturopathic medicine. And it was sort of like, you know, the way angels do that. They're like, Hey, you should pay attention to something on this page. Cause you already have familiarity with it. And, and there it was. And I made that decision that day. I was like, I'm going here. Yeah. And I took a double major to do pre-med and I don't know that I would have done it again had I stopped to think about all that it would take. <laughs> yeah, because you had to, you finished up where you were and then you went. Then I added pre-med, same college, which was nice. You know, I could, I could use, yeah. But there were some things that I couldn't get and I wanted to start in the fall. So it was just this, you know, really trying to compress. I was taking like 23 credits and did summer labs and all this kind of stuff to get ready and yeah, fly out to Portland, Oregon and go to school. So yeah, it was a, it was a very big commitment, financial commitment, time commitment, all those things. And it's hard work, you know, to, to learn naturopathic medicine, you have to know everything that conventional medicine, general practice doctors know, plus this whole other level of tools and then how to combine them safely. Uh, And I don't, I don't think most people know that a naturopathic doctor studies all that an allopathic doctor does. I I don't think people realize that. So that's a really critical point that I'm glad you mentioned because I want people to know that because it really makes a difference when people are considering that they think, oh, a naturopathic doctor is just someone who's studied herbs and, you know, alternative ways of treating, but you really understand the body as a whole system. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how, that's my origin story, I guess. <laughs> I love that story. That, that is, that is definitely, uh, I'm, I'm glad I asked you that because <laughs> and I love to hear just about how people get to where they're going, right? Some people are like, I knew I wanted to work in a healing profession from the beginning. I always felt that way when I was growing up. And maybe you had some of that, that there, you just didn't really necessarily know it. And that's why you, you were placed where you were and saw the things mm-hmm. that you did and came to that realization. Well, I'm glad that you did that. Thank um, you. Yeah. I'm continuously <laughs> stunned at the loving divine guidance that's available. Mm. If we just listen, you know, <laughs> or trust a lot of times we hear it, we don't necessarily trust. And that's yeah. the key, right? We've got to trust and we've got to listen and step back and, and, you know, pay attention to it, allow ourselves time. And we'll get into talking about that because that's all part of, of what we're going to talk about. You know, so I think one of the things that I wanted to talk about early on, just, um, you know, this is going to be focused on the work that you've done with people who experience mold illness. And for a lot of those listening, it may be a new topic for them. For others, they're either working through it or they do have an inkling of it. They just don't know very much. So um, we're going to kind of delve into a lot of different things. Um, you, You often talk about mold as being something that is really good for the earth right but it's Beautiful also yes. yes something that uh-huh. we need to keep outside not inside yes. so yes. <laughs> talk to me a little bit about the origins of mold and what is good about it and how you would describe it yeah it's one of the oldest living creatures we might say on the planet um, and if you think about every time a deciduous tree every time we have a fall or an autumn all of those leaves if there wasn't mold around that would just be stacking and stacking and stacking and stack. We'd be trying to go through just, you know, piles and piles and piles of debris. 
So mold's job is to break things down that were previously living organic material into teeny tiny nutrients. It's like makes little multivitamins for all of the plants the and the nematodes, little worms, you know, the whole, everything going on from soil up, it's helping to nourish. That's a really important job. That's a, a hugely important job. And I like that you're talking about the, the vitamins that it creates for the, the natural world and that it isn't something that we need to completely fear. We have to know that it's got this balance of, of what it does. And the other side of it, as everything is balance and yin and yang, what the other right. side of it is, we don't want it inside. When it comes inside, Right. That's the problem. We are, I mean, I, I kind of vilify mold in my book just so people start to really understand yeah. it is so much more than an aesthetic problem. This is not just something that's icky to look at. This is something that can deeply harm health. Mold is actually can cause cancer. So I want people to be really understanding the possible harm that it can cause not to create fear, but to create respect for it. And then also understand that we're confusing the mold. We're completely confusing it by the way we built our homes. We build it ultra tight. So there's humidity and stagnation, lots of clutter. And, you know, if you think about what we talked about, mold's job is to take previously living organic material. Well, what do we build our house with? Previously living organic material. So, you know, you got it's like mold comes in. It's like, this is amazing. And so now it is dissociated from the balances of the natural balance. And just like any of us, when you are out of balance, you don't necessarily behave in the most loving, kind, compassionate, balanced way. And that's what mold does. It finds this sweet spot and it's it's just like stagnant, all the things it loves lack of light, stagnation, extra humidity. You don't have to have a flood to have a mold problem. You just need high humidity. So you can live in a perfectly dry house, no water events, but still have a mold problem because you have high humidity and lots of organic material. Usually that's dust is its favorite food because it's easiest to eat. It's almost like potato chips, you know, <laughs> and it doesn't have to actually eat the potato, but you know, it will take any kind of previously living organic material and make food out of it if the right conditions are there. Yeah. Yeah. Which is such an interesting thing to think about because that is where I think the general population is sort of stuck. They think, well, I've got a new house, so how could I have mold? Yeah. Um, or I've got a super tight house, really well constructed. How could I have mold? Um, right. And I also think that that mold remediation and people who look at mold and people who clean up houses or do house projects don't give it the consideration that they should. Um, I remember someone telling me many years ago that that toxic mold could not exist in Ohio. Oh. I, know, I know this was a really long time ago before wow. I about mold. But when I thought about that, I thought, well, that that's not true that i mean it no. can exist everywhere right on the space station they had a mold outbreak on the space station really so this that idea that you know move to the desert and you'll be protected now there are amounts of humidity that make mold a little easier to grow in yeah. the type of indoor environment you know if you think about the types of molds that move in are the ones that like to live at the same temperature and humidity as we do that's how we have a problem with it yeah. But, you know, in the desert, is there mold? Yeah. But it's less, you know, there's less humidity and less chance of creating problem, except 
wherever you are on the planet, we tend to like the same indoor environments. You know, I mean, you go stay at a hotel in Africa, it's going to be the same kind of environment indoors than in Wisconsin. So yeah, yeah that's where we run into trouble is our indoor spaces. So talking about like just that that community of people that don't necessarily um, believe in mold, there's also the community of physicians that aren't really there. We're going to move into like symptoms and how you find it, but but why do you think there is such resistance there? Or because I do feel like there is some resistance in a way to if somebody were to come to them and say, "Hey, I think you know what about mold?" and they'd say, "Nah, that's not really an issue." Yes. Where do you think that comes from? I, it's it really makes sense when we think about how medicine proves truth. Mm-hmm. Um, what we do is we do randomized clinical trials, and there aren't those for mold because we know that mold and mold toxins are carcinogenic. They cause infertility. They cause kidney damage, liver damage, brain damage. When you we can't purposefully enroll someone by medical ethics mm-hmm. to a toxin, a known toxin, to figure out how to make them better. Yeah. And with any toxin-based illness, the number one treatment is remove the toxin, remove the exposure. Yeah. So a lot of medicine thinks of that as like, well, if it, if there are these things called mycotoxins, all they have to do is just not, not eat them, not be in the environment and they'll be fine. But what we're finding out is it's a coin flip about half of the people after that exposure need treatment in order to get better. They, their body doesn't just re-regulate that. So I think that it comes down to understanding how how medicine is done now conventionally, the way that I'm trained is also appreciating empirical evidence, you know, things that have been done for eons, they talk about mold in the Bible. So this isn't like a new thing. This has been around a long, long time. And it's so interesting in the Bible, they talk about it as both a a physical illness and a spiritual illness. You have to have the pastor or priest come and actually pray over the building. And so it's really fascinating Um, and then removal is absolutely the, the remediation isn't just going in with a fogger or an enzyme product or whatever. I mean, even in the Bible, there's remediation plan in there that says these stones must be removed and it must be taken to an unclean place outside of town because they understand that certain molds, once they take hold, they can affect everybody. And because there's air exchange, they can affect everybody. So I think there's a lot of resistance because we, we stop at mold illness as spore illness. So things like allergies, asthma, um, hypersensitive lungs, and then all the way down the other spectrum to aspergillosis of the lungs or infection, which we're seeing with COVID, we're seeing more lung fungal infections. There's a whole lot of space in between there that has to do with the mycotoxins and also the chemicals that regular mold makes. So yeah, that whole chunk in the middle, we can't study with a randomized clinical trial. Yeah, that's the challenge, definitely. I mean, and especially even in in um, any sort of uh, integrative or functional medicine practice, like it's like when you start to study nutrition, like you can't really control unless you keep people in a hotel room for six weeks and know right. exactly what they eat. So that's why, you know, a lot of those studies aren't really as accurate as we would want them to be. But that's, that's really helpful to understand just um, that challenge. And, you know, we're going to kind of go through and I'll mention and also put some things in the show notes about your book. Um, and because it's really got such great, great 
information you could just grasp onto and use right away. And I know that was the purpose of, of you creating yes. that book. Um, Trying to create it very simply because people who get affected by mold get mold brain. Right. And that is a very real thing. And so I, I tried to take really complex things and distill it down to normal people language, easy steps um, with a real plan that I've used in, in practice. And the things that I'm using in the book are based on animal research. So somehow we've decided it's okay to purposefully expose animals to, <laughs> to mycotoxins. I don't know how we decide that's okay. So that we can study what we can use. And then in my years of working with mold, I basically have done translational medicine, which is where you're taking animal research and translating it to humans. And a lot of the things that they're using with animals are things I, as a naturopath have been trained in and are very comfortable with and understand dosing and what we can expect. So the doses in the book are kind of for your average garden variety mold affected person. Okay. Yeah. 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 That's good. So, so let's start a little bit into, um, how, how you would even identify that somebody has mold. Um, I, so my background, I'll tell you a little bit too. Um, I worked at the Cleveland Clinic Center for Functional Medicine and really didn't, I knew about mold, but I didn't really know about it from a clinical perspective until I worked there. And one of the doctors, she just would always find people who had mold, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and I, you know, you can disabuse me of this idea, but I, I feel like I heard somewhere that if we tested pretty much everybody, we all would come up with maybe some level of mold, yet we're not all um, affected by it um, to the degree that other people are. I don't know if that's true, but, you know. Yeah, I don't know about that. I mean, I think that that comes down to also part of the problem with mold is the testing. <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah. you know, we do get a bit of mycotoxins in our food sources. Mm -hmm. um, and so when I'm testing patients, if I know that I'm going to do a certain test, like a urine mycotoxin test, mm -hmm. I have them go off the mycotoxin contaminated foods for three days so that what we're seeing is actually not a food based. We've taken that limitation of the test. So I think if you did test everybody without taking that measure, probably you're going to see ocrotoxin. It's a persister. So okay. once it grabs onto the body, it's hard to get it off the body or, you know, off the albumin. So a lot of people have ochratoxin in a urine test if you don't control for that factor with the okay. diet. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so one of the things I know that in the, and there, this is just a, a blood test, but I don't know if it is effective. Like if you, you know, again, we're talking to people in this podcast that potentially may hear some of these symptoms and talk to, you know, hear you talk and say, Ooh, that could be my problem. Like I've been sick and it's not getting better. And maybe I'll look mm -hmm. at this, but the complement component C, the C4 test that, which is a blood test, is that at all something to even start with or where would, what is, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, that is a, a shoemaker based. I'm not shoemaker trained. I was trained by naturopathic doctors. So, you know, trained in a different way. Um, and we're finding that some of those markers, his panel is to be looked at as a whole, as a complex, not just one marker, mm -hmm. because each of them are indicators of mold may be a problem if they're either high or low, depending on the marker, but each one individually can't be taken as an individual. You really need the whole same thing with urine mycotoxin testing. Okay. It's a data point. And there's also serum mycotoxin antibody, which is different than a mold allergy test. You can have a completely normal mold allergy test that's allergy to spore and mm -hmm. still be mold sick because you're being sick from the mycotoxins. Ooh, that's so cool. there's mold spore allergy testing 
And then there's a special lab called my myco lab that does spore mycotoxin antibody testing. Okay. Basically mycotoxin allergy. You can think of it that way. So there's all these different ways. So the C4 test, um, we would run a C4A and C3A. It has to be run through a specific lab and it's an indicator mm. of inflammation. So they can be high with Lyme disease. They can be high with forest fire exposure. TGF beta one is one of those on that, on that complex, you know, of tests, that whole panel that goes up with exhaust exposure to car exhaust, okay. um, urban environment air. So it, it's a marker that your body's inflamed and upset about something, but it doesn't clearly identify mold. I think of all of the shoemaker things that I think lead us to the mold question a little heavier is the visual contrast sensitivity test. Oh, right, right. That one is lovely because it, it really does, depending on where your contrast is having issues, it points more toward nutritional deficiency versus biotoxin illness and biotoxin could be mold, Lyme, those sorts of things. So there's some patterns because it's such a cheap and easy test to do. It we is. now have enough of an idea when we see a pattern there that we can say, oh, this is probably what's happening with this person. They're probably having a Herxheimer reaction or that kind of thing. So I like the VCS as a screen. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely an interesting when I first learned about that, and again, maybe you can explain it a little bit better than I, but it's it's something that anybody can do. They can go online and take this visual acuity test or visual mm -hmm. scanning test and it will come up with results that that would lead you to say, yeah, maybe I should be tested a little bit more for this because I also know, well, maybe we had a water issue or maybe we did find mold in my house and maybe the, or, or I'm just having symptoms that aren't resolving. So it and is that's the most common is yeah. like we had a little like they think back, well, we did, I think, have that one bathtub leak, but it was so small and we took care of the leak and whatever. And they think it's totally fine. It's not a mold problem. And it's been a smoldering problem for eons. So it's more common to have people not really realize that they're being exposed to mold, which is that's why I wrote the book. That's why I'm out here doing this, because I think, <laughs> yeah. come on, you know, we have to roll this out. So yeah. yeah, yeah, let's pay attention to it. And, you know, we were talking before we actually started recording and I said, oh, we're going to hold that for now. You asked me, um, I said, I have a couple of clients right now who have mold exposure and they're working with someone. Um, I certainly I'm the health coach, so it's not like I'm leading the the charge against mold. I usually but but I because of my work, you know, at the clinic, I do when I'm doing sort of a history with someone or doing their timeline. There are certain things that people say and I go, have you ever been tested mm -hmm. for mold or, you know, do you think that's a possibility? Um, and certainly it's, you know, that's one of the things they can do. They can go and do that visual test. Um, mm -hmm. And then I think, you know, just simple blood work. And sometimes, you know, the things that you go a little bit deeper with, um, they're not going to do right off the bat. But that's always a question of mine when I hear some of the things that you're going to probably talk about, right? What mm -hmm. we see with people. And what, so what is your, when you're, so you see a lot of people who have mold, but way back when, before you started working with mold um, patients, what were some of the things that just triggered your mind and, and you started to think, oh, is this something else? Um, who mm -hmm. are you seeing and what was triggering your, your intuition? 
Yeah, that's such a good question because that <clears throat> that has been an evolving um, understanding as I work more and more with it. I started in the Lyme disease world because I'm in Southern Wisconsin and Wisconsin's usually like number three or number four in the country of Lyme disease cases. So here I am in an area that doesn't really understand Lyme disease. And so we had a lot of people that weren't being treated or were being undertreated, and so developed persistent or chronic Lyme. I went and got training in Lyme disease so that I knew what in the heck to do with this and had, you know, as you identify and treat the cause, like the work that you do, the work that I do. And we have very, very hardworking clients and patients that are willing to do the changes. So we see results, you know, we see miracles happen on a daily basis. So I was seeing a really good response to this Lyme treatment, but this tiny group of people never responded. And I'm thinking, what am I missing? You know, what is going on? And in one patient in that group, um, what I was calling my non-responders, and I would go back to the Lyme, Lyme things and be like, what am I missing? What am I missing? And in one of those patients' homes, they found black mold in a remodel. Mm. And they estimated it had been about 10 years, 10 to 12 year exposure based on the timing of the remodel. So they were remodeling a remodel that was done inappropriately. And it, I just, when I got in the research of it, cause I had, as a naturopathic doctor, I had understanding that mold was a little more than an allergy problem. Like it was a toxin problem, but I didn't really completely understand. And then as I got into the research, I thought, oh my gosh, I think that's what's going on with this person, this person, this person, you know, all my non-responders for Lyme. Right. And the keys were, I think if we understand how mold makes you sick, it's with the spores spore fragments, chemicals of happily living mold and mycotoxins. So it's four different ways. It's got all of these weapons against our bodies. Yeah. We're not the target of those weapons. You know, the spores are not out there to, you know, take us out or anything like that. They're just trying to go find a hospitable world, have their babies and their grandbabies. You know, it's just all just like humans. <laughs> yeah. And then the chemicals are just things that they off gas as part of their life cycle. But those chemicals can make us very chemically sensitive. So that's a keynote for me is somebody's really chemically sensitive and they have a new problem, allergic problem they've never had in their life before. The other thing with those mycotoxins, mold will make that to compete out territory. So they are made purposefully to be a bioweapon for other living things. We're not really the target. Another microbe is the target, but they can affect us the same way. So the bulk of the symptoms in my patients were due to the mycotoxins and not necessarily due to the allergies and the spores and things like that. They may have some kind of sinusitis or, you know, sore throat or post-nasal drip or that glue ear, as we call it, spore kind of things, you know, sensitive lungs, asthma. Those are a little easier to identify because they're the more classic mold symptoms, but the bulk of the symptoms are going to be coming from those mycotoxins and the mycotoxins are fat soluble or oil soluble, which when a person who's not medically trained hears that they're thinking like, you know, booty fat (laughs) or like, you know, extra spare tire fat. When in medicine, we hear fat soluble, we think brain tissue, nervous system, bone marrow, immune system, gut lining, skin, glands, and the linings of all of those things. So if you think about now, why is it hard to identify mold? Because it's all of those tissues. Yeah, it's it's all of those tissues. And it's going to make whatever your genetic tendency or Achilles heel, it's going to make that worse. And so you'll be thinking, and very, I can give you some very, very common ones, anxiousness. Mm-hmm. 
I don't think that I have worked with one multi person that didn't have some level of anxiousness. And I'm careful not to say anxiety because it's not necessarily to the degree of anxiety disorder, although that can happen. It's usually like a low level internal, something's not right. And so you go and you look around your world and you start to pin it on your marriage or your finances or your kids or your job or your boss. And you, you try to pin that because it doesn't make sense. Your, your brain is telling you, I'm not safe, something's not right. But because the toxin is invisible, you don't, you don't see the tiger, you know, and that's not how our, our stress system is built. It's right. built to run from the tiger. Um, so that, that anxiousness is really common fatigue. Mold is a very high contributor to chronic fatigue syndrome. And this, um, my, I, I always say it myalgic encephalitis, you know, so basically based it's chronic fatigue, the new name. Um, and also you might see some kind of vision change. That's very common. That's why we use the visual contrast sensitivity test. A lot of people will just say, man, my eyes are going, I'm getting old and then you go to the doctor and you get your eyes checked and you get some glasses or contacts and your vision changes two weeks later. And you think your eye doctor doesn't know what they're doing, but it's the mold affecting your visual processing. So oh, those are really common. Yeah, that's one I didn't really know about necessarily, even though I knew about the visual contrast test, I didn't really think about the, the change that could happen in your vision and that glasses wouldn't necessarily make it better. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. And, and also we see, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just going to say, you know, as you talk about this stuff, it's, you know, I always think about most of the, the patients that come to me through the docs that I work with, they come from having gone through conventional medicine and either been labeled, you know, there's nothing wrong with you. Your tests are fine. Psychosomatic. It's not... There's nothing going on with you yet. People, you know, particularly those feelings of anxiousness, right? Yeah. And feeling, you know, that that's also connected as you would probably talk to us about the gut microbiome, right? So absolutely, it also have yep. to be, So it, it and that when I get to talk to people about that, I'm so excited because it's like okay it's, you're not inherently flawed. There's right. something going on in your body that it's you didn't real. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. I was trying to do like top down and the very next thing I was going to say is some kind of gut disruption yeah. where they start to lose foods. They start to, you know, narrow the diet because they'll have a reaction if they step out of that margin at all. So new food sensitivities, new chemical sensitivities, maybe some skin changes, which could be rashes and inflammatory type. But if you tend toward the dry skin aging type, it's going to be more aging, more age spots, more wrinkling, more dry skin, those sorts of things. So it, it makes whatever your tendency is worse. We see a lot of urinary frequency. And it's if you think about how we're testing mold in a lot of cases is urine mycotoxin testing. We test that because that's how your body gets them out. And while they're in the bladder, they're bumping up against the bladder wall and causing ulceration and irritation. So it can look like an interstitial cystitis. I cannot tell you how many people were, <laughs> were mold sick and were given the diagnosis of interstitial cystitis, anxiety disorder, and tinnitus. Yeah. Those three, I'm just like, and if they're tired and they, you know, like, okay, we got to rule out mold. <laughs> right, right, right. And, you know, often, you know, people with interstitial um, cystitis don't get better from the things that, that they're treating it with. 
it keeps right. coming back. It keeps coming back. I'm, yeah. I'm right in my head. I'm right back in, in the clinic with somebody who is just telling me that, like, it just keeps coming back. I can't figure it out. We don't know. Um, hopefully that person saw my other physician who <laughs> looks for mold. She always looks for mold. Yeah. Yeah. Good. I mean, it's there so often in the chronic, chronic illness space, you know? And so the, the keep coming back part, we can see SIBO, we can see interstitial cystitis from resistant bacteria and see prostatitis things, sinusitis, lungitis, <laughs> because yeah. when those mycotoxins, when we have that first interface with them, as we breathe them, they will actually change the flora of our sinuses, of our oral cavity. They'll change the flora of our lungs. They change the flora of our gut. Every time we swallow, we swallow that down. And so you start to get this fungal burden in the body and the body starts to have what was a healthy commensal microbiome becomes a competitive, you know, everybody out for themselves kind of environment. And that's not harmonious that creates harm you know, and that's going to create emotion changes because that creates neurotransmitter changes. We make most of our brain chemistry in our gut. So if your gut is a mess, <laughs> your brain's going to be a mess. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because so many people that we see, you know, they may have a really good diet, right? Mm -hmm. They're not eating junk. They're eating really good, healthy diversity, organic foods, um, lots of the things that you need. But then you, you look at the gut microbiome and there's just this imbalance that keeps happening. There's no good flora. The acromancia is not there and we try to like put it in there, but it doesn't stay. Right. right. And is that, you know, one of the things, one of the reasons why, um, yeah. and I know from my perspective, like most of the functional medicine docs will, will do like the gut microbiome stuff. They'll do other testing. They'll do this, they'll do that. And mold is like one of the last things that they look at. Should mm -hmm. that be, a little more in the beginning, do you think? Ideally, and that's what I'm really on a mission to to update our understanding of mold related illness. I have a questionnaire in my book. And if anybody wants it, who's listening, you can just go to my website, there's get the questionnaire. Um, and what I'm trying to do is scientifically validate that to have it be a tool that we can use to measure. So what I see the trends are the person that is doing everything right, but not getting the, re the right response, not getting as as profound of a healing from something that you would see in another patient. You're like, that's so strange. I've used this, you know, kind of plan, even if we do individualized medicine, obviously. So not everybody gets the same thing, but if you're doing this kind of what we would consider a balanced diet and you've done some detox and you're, you've regulated sleep and they're moving their body and they're doing all this, but they're still struggling. Then we go to environment. It's just like fish. You can change the fish food to something more optimal, but if they're still struggling, then you got to check the water, you know, check the pH, check the whatever. And so I, I'm hoping that what we can do is catch the, the cluster of symptoms that tend to go together with mold. And that's what the questionnaire is trying to do sure. give a score. So someone can fill it out at the beginning, if they're having some sort of reaction and, you know, sometimes people really, really healthy people, they just have a gut that won't let them eat a whole, you know, diverse range of foods and they have a lot of injuries and they have insomnia and then let just kind of live with it and say, well, it must not be that bad of a deal because I, I'm not that bad compared to most of the people I see. I'm not that bad, you know? And right. I think, well, 
you know what, this is carcinogenic. Why, why wait? Why wait for something worse to happen? Mold is changing you on the genetic level. Yeah. It changes our genes. <laughs> Let's start with it early. <laughs> if that's not an overarching theme that should be spoken about more, and what I'm talking about is the, well, I'm not that, it's not that bad. And not compared to, well, I'm not really that sick. We minimize so often the things that are happening because we feel like, well, you know, just, I had somebody say to me, well, I just thought feeling a little crappy after eating all the time was normal. No, it's not normal. Like you shouldn't, right. but we normalize a lot of these things because number one, we don't want to be a hypochondriac, but we also think like, oh, our body's shouldn't really necessarily be form performing at, at a higher level. This is just normal, right? Mm -hmm. I'm just getting or it's stress. Time. I just don't handle stress well, or, you know, we, we blame it on ourselves and yeah. yeah, yeah. Our society has normalized so much illness, mm -hmm. you know? Thanks. Yeah, I would yeah. agree. I would agree. Well, so that's a great, um, great way to that they can go to your website and kind of take that quiz and, and understand a little bit more about the symptoms that might be leading to that get a score, but also help you to kind of create this, you know, tool that mm -hmm. you can find um, really some quantitative research on and, and figure out some things and move this this mold story forward a little bit more so people understand it better. Um, yeah. So so tell me a little bit about, we've talked a little bit about um, the uh, just testing for people, um, testing the environment and credentials and, and how do you find someone that's a really good, reliable source? Because I think there are a lot of not reliable sources out there to test your home, right. to test, you know, every, not just the mold, but the entire house, right? What are some things that you recommend that people use? First of all, don't use your doctor for that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very sassy about this because oh. there are so many doctors that are trying to navigate this in their appointment. They've never seen the building and they're showing somebody how to collect an ERMI sample, which this ERMI has been designed as a detection tool, not a diagnostic tool. It was just meant that EPA just created this to try to get a read on how moldy buildings were in the United States. Okay. And somehow now that's been taken as a diagnostic tool. It's informative, yeah. but it, the numbering system is flawed and you need somebody who is actually in your space. The most important tool for a mold uh, inspector is their eyeballs because okay. <laughs> okay. they know what they're looking for. They know, they know the signs. And so finding that person, they are not all created equally. Inspectors and remediators are definitely not all created equally. And a lot of them, because they forget they have a selection bias, they're being called into houses where there's problems. Mm -hmm. So their selection bias is every house has a little bit of mold in it. Mm. Well, not necessarily. I mean, every house probably has a little bit from the outdoors, but not every house is a host to that. Okay. And so they kind of lose the idea that there are actual healthy houses out there because they don't get called in to see those. Right. Sure. Right. Just like you and I, like we're, we can't assume that the people that are coming to see us represent the entire United States. True. There are plenty of people who are going to the gym. They're doing just fine. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that is so true. You can get so skewed in your, in your um, perspective. So are you saying that yeah. maybe it's something that you shouldn't do, or is it like a first step to go, 
okay, yeah, there's some stuff here. Let me get somebody else in here to look at it. That's a tricky question you're asking me because I, I don't feel like the doctors or the clinicians should be driving this. We don't know enough. Yeah. And there have been, so that's not going to be the answer anyone wants to hear because it's kind of a disempowering answer, you know, like, what what if I, what if I can't afford an inspector or, you know, there are inspectors that will help guide you through this. They do virtual consults. They, you know, so finding an inspector and a remediator, they should be two different parties. It should not be the same because you want the inspector to be the watchdog and guide the remediation plan of the remediator. The remediator hasn't gone in and done the full assessment of your attic and your crawl space. And they haven't, they're just like, tell me what to do. And, you know, we'll get it done. And then the inspector should come back afterward and do post-testing to make sure everything was done correctly. Okay. That's a perfect world scenario. Good. Here's an imperfect world scenario is your doctor says, we just did this, you know, either the shoemaker panel or urine mycotoxin testing or something, you know, the, the serum mycotoxin antibody testing. Okay. You have mold, go do an ERMI. Okay. Nope. I can, I cannot tell you how many cases of dementia, ALS, cancer, MS that were a doctor thinking that they were doing the building job. They okay. don't. And so then what happened is people did the ERMI, maybe did it correctly or incorrectly. They went off the ERMI score and they said, nope, not a mold problem. Okay, let's go find something else. Let's go find the other thing, the thing that it really is. Yeah. EMFs. Okay, it might be EMFs. Mold makes you more sensitive to those. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mold makes, you know, EMFs make mold more aggressive. It might be EMFs or piece of it. But if it's mold and we've missed it because the doctor tried to manage the testing, that's no bueno. Yeah. Yeah. That that's that's a really good valid point. I I, I definitely am I'm happy that you said that. And you're right. There's probably gonna be people out there um, that are gonna say, No, I, I know I feel I can do it, but I think it's important we're empowering the patients right now, right? So if your doctor says that, then you say, you know what, I heard that this is probably <laughs> not the the trajectory I should be going on. So, mm-hmm. so how do you find somebody who you know is qualified? I know there's some some uh, credentials out there that you can check. Mm-hmm. Yep. So we check for the ideal one would be a BBEC, that's a building biology inspector. The nice thing about that is they're not just a mold inspector okay. because I have had cases where they took my questionnaire and it was hook, line and sinker. This has to be mold. I have a very favorite local inspector who is a BBEC inspector. She went, she found a teeny bit of mold in a brand new couch. Gotta love that brand new couch. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and then the problem was actually a carbon monoxide leak. Wow. We've had another case where she went in and they had a leak in their gas stove. And so they had a, they had a basically a carbon monoxide or gas leak there. Actually, I don't know if that's carbon monoxide or dioxide. Anyway, okay. gas leak. Um, another one where it was mothballs put all over the house. So they were getting a pesticide exposure extraordinaire. Oh. So there are, and another where it was truly an EMF problem. This was an occupational patient of mine. Um, where they had done some changes to where the office was related to the refrigeration in their occupational place. And they had some pipes running through. So they had like a water electrical thing that was happening and she was starting to have seizures. And I was like, well, maybe there's a leak from the refrigeration. Let's call Martine in and see. And it was, it was uh, an electrical frequency. 
Okay. And they, they literally like moved her to the next room. Done. Not an old problem. So it's nice to have BBEC would be my favorite because they're looking, they don't just have mold goggles on. Um, There's also IICRC and ACAC. Those are the industries that certify mold. Um, I have borrowed a handout from We Inspect from Brian Carr and Corey, Corey Levy. Okay. Um, it's a handout that says how to find an inspector. And that's okay. on my website under handouts in the footer. Perfect. Perfect. We're going to link all that. Um, yeah. And then yeah. how to find a remediator is ask your inspector to vet the remediator. Mm, okay. So you don't even have to worry about how to find the remediator. You let the inspector. So your inspector is, they're everything. They're your insurance advocate. They help you with legal problems. They help you find the remediation. They're your watchdog for a good remediation. You want that inspector who's going to be really a bulldog and be your advocate. Okay. Yeah. This is such great information for me to to really know detail, more detail about this because, I mean, I know some of it, but it's it's really when you get into all of this as a chunk, because I don't see, you know, not all, I, I have a just a few people right now who are mold patients and they've been doing it for a while, but that's so key because then you know especially the the um initial the building inspector where you you can pull out okay maybe this isn't mold which would be phenomenal right right Right. that's that's an easier (laughs) fix just go to another room get away from it (laughs) i know i know and people kind of balk at the price i mean to get a good inspector for a a single family home you're probably going to be about 800 to a thousand dollars it's a huge chunk yeah. So I understand people not wanting and not passively being able to do that. And so it's really, you want it to be something where your doctor could help you with that, right? You, it would be so nice or to have some company come in and say, don't worry, your doctor found mold. We'll come in with a fogger, which puts more chemical into your environment, or we'll come in with an enzyme, which is just going to tick off the mold and make more mycotoxins. That's so seductive. Yeah, It's so seductive that you want that to be the thing. Those are not in and of themselves remediation techniques. Those might be the final step after the removal has been done, but removal is the gold standard. Yeah. Yeah. Just like in the Bible. (laughs) So helpful to know that. And I think, you know, once, once you get that, I mean, because it can be expensive. And, And what I like about your book is that it, it does give some really good hardcore ideas about how to treat and and kind of work on this like the fundamentals of avoidance and what avoidance and fundamentals and and sort of the five tools that you you've laid out so maybe let's talk a little bit about that um just kind of getting into i know the first one is avoidance 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 avoidance, um, yay she said all three (laughs) yep 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 um yeah but you've got the hardest part that's the hardest part, you know, because then you're sitting here thinking, is that forever? Do I have to move? And when I say avoidance, that can be remediation. Um, do I have to get rid of all my stuff? You know, all kinds of questions. And for most of, of my patients I work with, the avoidance is just get your own self out of there. Yeah. Find a place that is different. And, and there may not be a perfectly mold-free hotel that your insurance sends you to, but it's at least going to be different and less than what you're exposed to in your own home. You will get so much more clarity about the next steps, how to take care of your body. All of those things become so much clearer when you're out of the exposure, then you can work on remediation plan. Then you can work on what do we do about the stuff? 
And most of the time we just recommend people store their stuff and then one by one deal with the item so that you don't have to do it in this whole time when you don't feel good. It's just too yeah. much. Yeah, that is too much. I mean, I, I, you know, it's definitely a lot to think about. And hopefully, especially if you have mold brain fog, it's just right. not easy. You know, and if you have somebody else in your environment that can help you, that's really helpful. Mm -hmm. So so let's kind of talk a little bit about, um, you know, there's some people that get really sick from mold and other people that don't get really sick from mold. And they're maybe both exposed to the same thing. Yes. Why? Why? Yeah, isn't that wild? And that's where a lot of people end up not not um, kind of downplaying. Um, and I, I heard your interview with Dr. Mode. I love the term shortchanging. You know, it was oh, like yeah. you can sort of tell your body, your intuition that it's not. It's I don't. I don't have to listen to you. You know, this isn't right. It's fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. And that is because it's more the rule than the exception that everybody will react to mold differently. Mm -hmm. And there are different molds making different types of toxin that make different types of symptoms. And that's what we're going to try to elucidate when we scientifically validate the questionnaire is certain mold species make these toxins that then give this other picture that might help explain why different people have different reactions. Okay. You also have different exposures within the space itself. If you're the one whose bed is right on the wall where the bathroom leak is, you are going to have more symptoms than the person whose bedroom is way, way, way far away. That doesn't mean that there isn't air exchange, but it's just a total load. Right. And everybody is born with a different capacity to handle that toxin load. So we all have a different measuring cup size that we came into the world with. And I'm sure you talk about this all the time with your clients that you're going to get symptoms once you've filled up that cup with so much toxin, it's now spilling over as a symptom. Well, what if I was born with a teaspoon and my husband was born with two cup measuring cup, mm -hmm. it's going to take him longer to have a spillover. Yeah. So that's the, the unique genetic part, but there's also nutritional factors that go into that. So if you're low on glutathione, if you're low on DHA or good, you know, good oils, you'll tend to have reactions sooner than somebody who has enough of those. If you eat a varied amount of color in your diet of vegetables, you're going to have a longer reaction period. If you don't eat that stuff, you're going to react sooner. And if you've had a previous exposure, we talked about the mycotoxins, the message in the mycotoxins is I'm coming in and I'm going to take over. So your body does this conversion of healthy microbiome into a pathogenic biofilm if you came into that next exposure with an already pathogenic biofilm in your sinuses and your gut, boom, you will have much faster symptoms. Yeah. Yeah. You know, interestingly enough, like, so, you know, as I do these interviews or as I prep for them and I think like all these people come into my head that I've known, not necessarily patients, people in my life, like, you know, I had an aunt who said um, she went into a severe depression and she told everyone, and this was many, many years ago. Um, she said, you know, I used colloidal silver and it actually made me better. But then she went back into the depression. And as I was prepping for this, I thought to myself, you know, I wonder, like she had, she probably had a major mold exposure because her house was it was she was a hoarder she had so much stuff in her house 
and it was just a mess. And she's passed away just a couple of years ago, but she was in that major depression for so many years. And now oh. I think to myself, I bet that's what it was because the colloidal silver worked for a little bit, but you know, so what you're saying too is like, okay, like your environment is decent. You're taking care of yourself. You're eating well, you're eating, your underlying imbalances are not so imbalanced, right? You're getting good sleep. You're managing your stress. Your, your response to stress is different than others. Um, you've got the rainbow of colors in all your food. Um, glutathione is, is sort of this thing that our bodies can produce, but sometimes they don't pr produce enough. Um, it, it's so interesting that, and, and also like just in the environment that we're in now, like people are asking, they're asking the question, why do some people get COVID and others don't? I just read about a study where, you know, people living, there's a woman doing a study out of, um, maybe it's Denmark or Germany where she noticed her neighbors didn't have, like one would have COVID and the other one's a caretaker living in the same house, never got COVID. Never even had antibodies for it. So all of what you're talking about is like the host. How Yeah. do we take care of the host in a way that leads us to not maybe being so susceptible to this or not being as sick if we are exposed to it? Right, right. Let's just talk about some of those nuts and bolts around what you talk about in the world of nutrition and sleep and stress as we all talk about that in functional medicine, there are some key things. Yeah, there's some key things that we would normally recommend for for health and wellness and our kind of, you know, garden variety <laughs> patients, so to speak. that we can't recommend for mold sick people because it will make them worse. And one of those is fermented foods. Right. And I learned this the hard way. You know, I am a naturopath. We are into fermented foods and probiotics and all those things. And here I was to these chronic Lyme patients. I'm like, oh, you're on antibiotics for your Lyme or maybe it was antimicrobial herbs. But usually, you know, there was a point to where the non-responders were like, let's try the antibiotics and see, that's probably the problem. We probably aren't going heavy enough, you know? Well, then you have to have fermented food with that because that's going to rebalance the gut flora that those antibiotics are going to kill off. And they got way worse, way worse. And, you know, bloating was terrible. Constipation was terrible. And kind of that swinging consteria, you know, just no balance. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't think And I've I'm heard thinking, that term before. That is, yeah, well, that was made up by one of my patients. So I was like, so you have constipation or diarrhea? It's like, constaria, really. Like, That's I'm so a constipated, great term. so constipated, so constipated. I've taken all the senna, all the stool softeners, all the things. And then when I go, it's diarrhea. So it's just, you know, no microbiome, no happy microbiome going on there. I thought, what in the world is happening? And so then we try, you know, kind of my thing is remove the last thing we added just to see if that's what it was doing, if that was the problem. And over and over and over again, the fermented foods were the things that made things worse. Medicinal mushroom, same thing, Yeah. you know, and it's, I don't want that to be true because they're some of my favorite things, but they're also the way back to resilience. So I take away things that are in the fungus family, yeasts, yeasted breads, um, you know, no more nutritional yeast on your popcorn, you know, all that's got to go away in the early phases. Mushrooms need to go away, cheeses, blue cheese, bye-bye, um, fermented foods, no kombucha, no black tea, nothing that's been fermented, no alcohol. So that all goes away in the very beginning and you will see a reduction in a symptom somewhere. It's 
unbelievable to watch that. Yeah. Yeah. Just that part of the avoidance, you know? And that's important to, to know, like you're saying, go away in the beginning. It's a therapeutic approach. Exactly. It isn't that, you know, the, the purpose isn't that you're going to just never be able to eat those things again, because as you said, medicinal mushrooms and fermented foods at some point can be a very good way back to a healthy gut. Yes. Yeah. In the, the doctor course that I have, I call this, that phase myco remediation of your body. Okay. So, you know, we're getting, and I borrowed that from Paul Stamets. He's an amazing, um, the mushroom oh, guy. Love him. Yes, yeah. Yes. And I was like, that's so great. They're doing that for the soil. We could do myco remediation for bodies. And then that's, you know, the tail end of the treatment time when you're feeling pretty good, but if you go to a restaurant and it's moldy, you could be sick for a couple of days after, and that's no fun. Not that anyone should be eating at a moldy restaurant, but you know, there's going to be some times where you're just exposed right. and you don't want to have to be sick for two weeks after. So using things like fermented foods and medicinal mushrooms are great at the tail end to get that resiliency back. Okay. I love yeah. that. That's a great idea. And, you know, so a couple of things I wanted to point out, like your book has so many great go-to, um, pieces of information for people to kind of work through this protocol themselves and some ideas around food and herbs and all of that stuff. Um, maybe even the herbs that you learned from the woman in the yes. <laughs> natural food shop, right? Like that's <laughs> yes. a great- Milk um, thistle was one of her favorites for the liver cancer. You know, it's like milk thistle, artichoke and turmeric. Those were her, she'd yeah. mix up something, they'd add it to like coconut milk or something and eat it every day. And I was like, oh my gosh. Yeah, There's that's so, so much great. studies on that now too. Right. I mean, back then not, but she knew, right? I mean, and this is all ancient. I, I, I feel like I've said this so many times, almost in every podcast I've done. It's all ancient wisdom in a lot of ways that we either forgot about, let go, didn't really connect to because there was no written information about it, right? It was passed on from oral history to people, but it's it's really powerful stuff right now. And that's what I love about your book too, because it just gives you all that great information. So that I wanted to say, but I also wanted to say um, the, the doctor's course, talk to me about that, because that's really a place where we can start to connect and get people to understand a little bit more about the mold and what they might be looking for. Yes, I am on a mission to expand the medical acceptance of mold and have them really understand the full complex of mold related illness. It's not just allergy. You know, we've probably nailed that home a lot. So I um, stopped taking new patients uh, so that I could build some space in my calendar to create more mold literate doctors. So I have a, an online course. It's a deep, deep, deep dive course, 10 hours. <laughs> so it takes people through all of the mechanisms, the science, and there's, it's loaded with studies, but it's primarily animal research based on what we talked about earlier. Yeah. And then a treatment approach, then what to do when things don't go right. Cause that's, it's going to be that way. Things go sideways, you know, and then some things about the remediation of the building part at the tail end, just so you have some vocabulary and you can protect your patient from proprietary practices because Great. there are out there. So yeah, we go over every mycotoxin that you can test for at, the, at this time so that they know what to do with a lab result. Um, they get a text sheet on the mycotoxins. I'm building those out right now. So that's not every mycotoxin, but we do go deep dive on the mycotoxins. Okay. And then we go through the, um, it's basically the five steps that I do in my book, avoidance, fundamentals, protect, repair, and fight, but in a very 
much more expanded. You know, I couldn't put things in the book that wouldn't be safe for people to do on their own. I kept it pretty, you know, safe. Um, but there are more things that can be done. And ideally you would work with a mold litter, a doctor, you know, the book would sort of be your, you know, your dietary handbook of like, which foods should I be focusing on? I, I, I always hate to say, don't do this without giving a do this, you know, so right. there's a long list of foods to focus on. Um, I have recipes on my website. I'm hoping in the second edition, we'll stick some of those in the book. So people have more of a a complete Bible, but, um, are you yeah. working on the second edition? Oh, I'm always working on it. <laughs> you know, after you write something that it's like, Oh man, I forgot phosphatidylcholine. How did I do that? I use right, it I every day post about that. Yeah. <laughs> like I use it every day and I didn't even, but it's so, it became something so common. It right. just was, it didn't yet. So yeah, I have little things like that, that I'd like to do. And, Great. And so this is just for physicians. Do you now, are you collecting a list of people that, that maybe you can go to the website and go, okay, here's a mold literate doctor that I can yes. reach out to. Yes, absolutely. So on my website, you can go to the footer. It says find a doc okay. and I have a mold literate doctors thing there. I'm also creating a course on pandas and pans for, for physicians. So we'll have hopefully a pandas pans link there too in the future. But yeah, for right now for mold people that are, have taken my course are certified and are taking patients. So we, we do ask them to please only ask to be listed if you are actually accepting patients and you're willing to see mold sick people. Okay. So it's um, all over the country and also Canada, we have um, Australia docs. So anyone listening here that's in different areas, you know, we have UAE, we've got UK. So um, oh, good. Good yeah, good. really trying to make a global impact on acceptance of mold and understanding. That's, mm -hmm. that's phenomenal. And we'll talk about the pans and pandas right at the end. Cause that's your, your new book, right? That you're, which is, I'm not sure when that's coming out, but yeah. End of summer. End of summer. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, and that's that maybe I could have you back on the podcast to talk about that. Cause that's a whole nother topic in and of itself. But again, something that very connected to mold. Yes. Yes. It's very... one of the sequelae of mold exposure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think um, resources, there's so much stuff that, that you've got on your website, um, so much in the book, so much that, that people hopefully have gotten from this. I feel like that's um, a big part of what I wanted to be able to, to talk about. But the other thing that you said was this thing, right? Recovery is not linear. It's not, <sighs> you're not just going up, 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 up. And this is something I have to talk to my my folks about all the time that you're going to, you're going to feel worse before you feel better. And sometimes you're going to feel worse again, and then you're going to feel better. Yeah. Talk about that a little bit. So important. Yeah. For know. Thank you for bringing that up. I have a little diagram. I wrote it so often on the back of people's plans that I actually just took a photocopy of one of them and put it in the book just so people could see, like, this is the conversation we have. What can happen is you can feel like you need to change something or you're not doing it right. Or the plan isn't working because it'll work for a while. And then your body will say, Ooh, I feel safe to detox, ready, set, go. Yep. And you get a headache, fluey, you know, gut problems, pain. And that's the way healing works. Healing doesn't work in that straight line. So the, the message is don't necessarily change what you're doing you know, and get discouraged because that is a normal part of the process. The body heals in fits and spurts. 
<laughs> and the fits are not comfortable. <laughs> How do you see that yeah. to get through that? But if you know that up front, then you can sort of almost expect it, even though you don't want to expect it. You're doing really well. You're going, oh, good. Yeah. And then, Yay! Yeah. <laughs> and the body heals kind of from the deep out. So it will choose the things that are most critical for survival first, mm -hmm. and it might push something out to the surface and the surface we can think of as the gut, which doesn't seem like the surface to us, you know, but if you're thinking of it from a body standpoint, yeah. having the brain function, having your eyes work is way more important than your joints working, which is kind of interesting, you know, how the body thinks of things. So you might be getting better on things like mood, hope, you know, some of that organization ability to try to get your plan where maybe two weeks ago you was, you were just like so anxious. You couldn't even make a list yeah. that's improvement, right. even though you might have gotten a sinus infection mm -hmm. in that two weeks. So yeah, it's a healing is a really, really, and if anyone wants to, if anyone is a clinician listening, I always go back to the Herring's laws of cure. It helps me so much when I'm sitting with a patient deciding, cause you don't know, it, did they just get a new exposure? Is their remediation not done? Well, am I doing something to push too hard? Mm -hmm. You know, all of these little decision-making things that you have to do when you're sitting with a client or a patient and you think, boy, I don't, I don't really know what's going on. I don't know where to pivot here if we even need to, because yeah. the way that healing works so messy, staying the course is so often the plan and it's frustrating. Yeah, it is frustrating. And, and as the health coach, I often see people more often than the doctor does. So I'm usually talking them through that. In fact, I had one person right now and it's, you know, especially when they're first moving through it and she, she isn't necessarily a mold person right now. I don't, I don't know. I shouldn't say. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, but, um, she's just working through some diet changes that actually weren't that significant. They were pretty mild, but but she's just experiencing a lot of like increased joint pain and, and things like that and not feeling good. And I said, there is a period of time, you know, stay the course a little bit. I don't want you to feel like, uh, you know, but, but I think, you know, when people are new to this kind of idea of healing, we're so used to taking something and we feel better right away, but it's not getting to the root cause. It's just putting right. a bandaid on it. And sometimes that bandaid is just really what people want because it's like, I just want to feel better now, right? right. I just, right. I have to feel better now. And that's, that's a lot of the work that I do. And part of what I have started, and we're coming to the end here, I don't want to keep you for too long, but um, the mindset around the health and wellness and, and going through this mindset is a really huge piece of what I do with my folks, because um, I think it's important the way that you look at this this discomfort, this, this pain or whatever it might be that's mm -hmm. going on that you would say this, I know this is a path to my healing, right? How can I shift and reframe the way I'm looking at this pain? Not that I don't want it. I certainly don't, but, um, you're saying, hello, I see you. Like I know that you are part of my healing. So I'm going to just welcome you and, and maybe try not to be so resistant. That's really hard. Right. 
Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I have a membership. So if people are looking for more support, since I'm not taking new patients, I'm trying to do the group model, you know, and there was just a discussion this week in there that I thought was so profound. Um, One of the members said the, that part of it and acceptance by the people in the world around you, that this is a real thing is the most complex part about having mold illness because it isn't like we talked about, everybody reacts a little bit differently and people want you to just get better because they care about you. And it's like, just stop it. You know, like just stop having reaction to mold. <laughs> well, if, if mast cells are engaged, if you, you know, there's different parts. So the mindset, there's a lot of pressure being put on you, not just from yourself that you want to feel better, but you've had that external pressure to stop inconveniencing everybody else's lives with your problem. Yeah. It's real and go ahead and, you know, accept it. Like you're saying, find the gift in that, like where, and that's, you know, when I was first told that with my own health issue, you know, I wanted to punch someone in the nose. It's okay. If you feel like you want to punch me right now. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. Totally counterintuitive to what you yeah. want to be thinking, but just, yeah. and I know you're not there yet. But you have to hold that vision that you are wired to heal. You will see the other side of this. And if you hold that vision every day or every time you brush your teeth, Mm -hmm. whatever you do on a routine basis, connect the vision of you are wired to heal and you will be a healthy person to that. So it's happening multiple times throughout the day. That's going to be a huge benefit. Well, it is a huge benefit, and there is there's research around that. Dr. Ali Crum, do you know about that stuff with the peanut allergy at Stanford? No, I don't know about the peanut allergy. Interesting. Well, they did a study with kids, and they took you know two groups, obviously one control group where they didn't talk to them about the symptoms of the peanut allergies, and the other group they talked to them about this being, um, you know, even though you're experiencing these things, take those as signs that your body is working through the healing process. Right. Mm-hmm. And that the the you know, symptoms that you're feeling are not about you're getting sick. It's about you're getting healthy. And what they saw was overall, these kids had less symptoms. They actually felt better. They got better quicker. Right. They were just micro exposures to peanuts to get them to sort of build this um, ability to tolerate them in a very controlled environment. Certainly, you're not going to do this with your kid who has peanut allergy. But right. But it was an, a great example of the idea of shifting the mindset. They didn't do anything different with these kids. They just told them to think differently about it. Mm-hmm. And it made uh, physiologically many changes happen that they didn't see in the group that didn't change their mindset. So it's powerful stuff. And it's also very. scientifically relevant. Yeah, very, very. Yeah, it's such a it turns it on its ear. A symptom is rather than, I wish this would stop happening. It's, Hey body, what are you trying to tell me? Yeah. You know, yeah. and it's staying in that curious place with it can keep you out of the frustration. Yeah. And so hard to do, but that's why you have support <laughs> around it, right? You have somebody that can help you walk through it. And I love that you're doing the group thing because then that's support with everybody there. And if it's, mm-hmm. if it's led through a group like that, people will be like, Oh, I don't know if I believe this, but if one person says, Hey, that made me feel better. I actually am working through this and it's, it's working for me. Then, then it becomes that viral thing, right? It's not just me or the doctor saying it. It's somebody who's actually experiencing it. Right. Yeah. And it helps to have tools for when symptoms do come up. Symptoms are communication. 
but it's also really nice to have something that can move that along. (laughs) And that's what I tried to do in my book is that there are a lot of tools in there. Not everybody needs to take everything. I tried to kind of identify if this is sort of how the mold is looking for you, this might be the better thing. Um, So yeah, it's got hopefully a little more individualized. Yeah, it is it, nice it really tools. Is. <laughs> I, I think that you're I've rec I've recommended your book to lots of people just because mm-hmm. I think it's it's so important for people to have some time to sit down to read it to understand it because when you first get that that diagnosis of mold, it, it's like I have no idea what to do with this right and so yeah. your book helps with that a lot. I'm I'm really appreciative of that. Um, so is there anything that you would say, I mean, we're going to kind of wrap up here. We're at um, an hour and 20 minutes, which I love because there's so much more I can talk to you about. Um, but is there anything, like you've given a lot of tools, is there, are there any other books or anything that you would say that you'd, you'd recommend for people to read or to help them understand a little bit more? There's a remediation book that is from The Mold Medic. Um, and that one is really nice just on the building side because he does also validate that mold can make you sick, you know, and it's coming from a building expert. So it's kind of the same. Yeah. And then Dr. Neil Nathan has a book that is called toxic that goes through much more than mold. You know, it's, it's, um, he also has a book mold and mycotoxins. That's an ebook, but the book toxic is wonderful. If you've gotten into the mold thing and the normal stuff, like the things in my book, if they're not working for you a hundred percent, there's a different level of things like mast cells and, you know, that you may need to be diving into. And that one can really help. We're a little different in our approach on the binders. Um, I use food and then go to the things like carbon or, you know, like the, I like something called Takasumi Supreme. It's like a carbonized bamboo Um, but I use them very sparingly because I don't want to create nutritional deficiencies. He's more started in the shoemaker camp and, you know, is a much more holistic MD. Um, but so if somebody is really excited about the binders and wanting to match the binder with the mycotoxin, that kind of thing, that would be a great resource book for you. you. That's perfect. That's great. Oh, thank you so much for doing this. I mean, such great information. As I said, I could keep going with you. And I, I do want to talk just really briefly. We've got that book coming out about pans and panda, which is, a, a you know, a, a bigger topic. Kids um, kind of talking about, um, you know, it's connected to mold. But that's going to be your next book, end of summer. And maybe you'd come back and talk to me about that. Yeah. A whole podcast on that. That would be lovely. Yes, absolutely. I'd love to talk about it. I'm really excited about that. <laughs> so tell people how they can find you. What's your website? Where are you on Instagram? All of that good stuff. Yeah. So I'm, my website is drkrista.com. That's D-R-C-R-I-S-T-A.com. And on there, there are handouts. The footer is where all the meat is. Um, so there's, you can get the questionnaire to find out if you do have mold, if you're listening um, handouts, pearls. I do a video blog every week, usually it's all kinds of things on the website. I am on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. So if you're a YouTuber, you can subscribe to my channel and consider the membership if you're needing a little bit more support. Okay. Yeah, that's great. So I I appreciate that. I'm going to put all of that in the show notes and people will have all that information just, um, at their fingertips when we post this. So thank you so much for being here and giving me your time because I know um, you're you're a busy person. You got a lot going on, um, but I appreciate the time that you've given. 
Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me on and helping me spread the word. Thanks.